0: I have uh, the joy this morning of addressing my uh, second most favorite subject in all the world. Uh, My first subject, of course, is to talk to people about the Lord Jesus. But after the Lord Jesus, nothing has brought more joy and delight in my life than being married now to uh, my wife Charlotte for almost 37 years and being blessed with four sons and now, by God's good grace, 11 grandchildren. And so the thesis of my uh, message this morning is simply this, marriage is a great gift from a glorious God that should point the world to Christ and the gospel. Let me say that again. Marriage is a great gift from a glorious God that should point the world to Christ and the gospel. And we see that very clearly in our text this morning, found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. Now, I recognize that most of you that are here this morning are single. And so marriage is something that is out there in your future. And so what I want to do this morning is just uh, assume that you are thinking about getting married. You've met the right man, you think, or the right woman. And so you've come to see me for the purpose of premarital counseling. And so we're gonna use that kind of model and laboratory this morning. And if that indeed were the case, and you were to come to see me, and I had about 30 to 40 minutes to talk with you, what would be the thing that I would want to say to you? Well, I would begin by pointing out that uh, the whole idea of marriage and family was God's idea and that when you look at the Bible, you discover that God basically gives a twofold job description to each member of the family. We're gonna see in Ephesians chapter five that he calls a wife to submit to her husband and to respect her husband. We're also gonna see that God calls a man to love his wife in a very particular kind of a way, and also to work at knowing or understanding her. And for another time, we would perhaps look at chapter 6 where we understand that God calls children to both obey mom and dad and to honor mom and dad and then that we see parents but fathers in particular are called by God to both educate their children and to encourage their children so as I would be talking to you as a perspective. Wife, I would take you to Ephesians 5 as we're about to do and show you this twofold assignment that God has for you of submitting and respecting. And then I would take uh, you as the prospective husband and I would show you that God has called you to love this lady and to work at knowing or understanding her. Now, it's really good to get the context of Ephesians 5, 21 through 33 because if you look at chapter 5, Paul is laying out for us the kind of life that is the result of you being made brand new in Jesus Christ and in fact he's very committed to the proposition that you're now going to have a completely different kind of lifestyle altogether. and he makes that very clear by using a very clear image three times in chapter five leading up to our passage and each time he is going to use the image of our walk he's going to say walk in this walk in that this walk in this which is just Paul's way of saying this is the kind of life that you ought to be living in light of who you now are as a new person in Jesus Christ so look at chapter 5 and verse 1 therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us Amen, we're gonna see that again in just a moment look at what he says there In verse 8, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then drop down to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Well, how do you walk in wisdom? Verse 18 tells us. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Uh, You're indulging in something to the point of doing damage to yourself, but rather be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So when it comes to this great gift from this glorious God, this gift called marriage, we need to understand uh, at the very beginning that it is a wonderful gift. It is a precious gift, this side of heaven. I think it is the best thing going, but you also need to understand it is very hard work. Why? Because you've got two sinners who have come together now in very close proximity and they're trying to figure out how to navigate and how to live life together so it's crucial that you walk in love it's crucial that you walk as a child of light it's crucial that you walk as a wise person not an unwise person it is absolutely essential that you would be filled continually with the holy spirit and so laying that then as a contextual foundation Paul then can begin to move into the specifics of what it looks like, first of all, for a wife who is spirit-filled, and then for a husband who is spirit-filled. And so look at what he says there in verse 21, submitting then to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me stop right there and point out. That God calls every member of the family to have an attitude and a disposition of submission to authority and to submission to one another. Now what he's going to show us is what this looks like. In the life of a wife, what this looks like. In the life of a husband, what this looks like. In the life of a child, what this looks like. In the life of a parent. So what does this look like, first of all, for the ladies when it comes to this issue of being submissive to one another? Well, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice it doesn't say every man. It says, to your husband, and here's the key phrase, ladies, as to the Lord. Now, why would he call a woman to be in a yielded or submissive relationship in marriage? And here's the rationale. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now let's unwrap this. I understand, uh, I'm not out to lunch on this. I understand that the idea of submission is not a popular idea in our day and time, in our particular age. But the fact of the matter is, guys and gals, it's never been a popular idea. None of us is naturally inclined to be submissive. Uh, We want what we want, Uh, we want it in the way that we want it, we want it when we want it, and we're not naturally inclined to be submissive. Furthermore, we have been deceived by a world that helps us to think wrongly in this area because we think that submissiveness equals inferiority. And yet nothing could be further from the truth, and I can demonstrate that to you by the most cardinal, essential doctrine of the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. If you are orthodox, when it comes to your understanding of the Trinity, you understand that we worship only one God, but this God exists and has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Furthermore, we believe. Whatever it is that makes God, God, God the Father is all of that, God the Son is all of that, God the Holy Spirit is all of that. So when it comes to God the Son, he is just as much God as is the Father and as is the Spirit. He is equal to God in his essence. How do we know that? Well, Jesus said in John's Gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said in John's Gospel, the Father and I are one. He says in John's Gospel, declaring himself to be the great I am of Exodus chapter 3, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus Christ makes a clear declaration, when you're looking at me, you are looking at God. He is equal in essence to his Father. But now let me ask you a very important question. Is God the Son submissive in his assignment to the Father? And the answer is yes, absolutely, without equivocation. In fact, Jesus can say in John's gospel, the Father is greater than I. Whoa, 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 I thought you just told us you and the Father are one. If we've seen you, we've seen the Father. You're the great I am. Yes, that is who I am in my person and who I am in my essence, but in my assignment to save men and women and boys and girls from their sin the father's greater than i he also says in john's gospel i only do that which the father shows me so what we need to understand is all human beings are equal in essence as image bearers of god but in this wonderful gift called marriage god calls a woman to yield in her will and notice again what it says there in verse 22 as To the Lord. In other words, when a woman, when a wife is yielding in her will to the leadership and the direction of her husband, she is actually yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ and she is rendering to him an act of worship through her submission. Now, he says there in verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Let me address that very quickly because there's a lot of confusion out there. Do I believe the word everything in verse 24 means everything without qualification or exception? And the answer to that question is no, I don't. So you say, oh, so you think there are some loopholes when it comes to this submission thing in marriage. Well, I would not call them loopholes, but I would say this. If in your marriage you have a husband who asks you to do things, and by the way, this should impact the way you date right now as well, if you have someone in your relationship that encourages you to do things that are illegal, immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, then in marriage you have to say, you know, sweetheart, I love you, I want to honor you, I want to submit to you. but. I have a master who is more important than you. I have a Lord who usurps your authority. In fact, to put it in my wife's words, she has often said, if Danny were to ever ask me to do something that would dishonor Jesus, I'm going to say no because my first allegiance is not to Danny. My first allegiance is to Jesus. And therefore, if it's illegal or immoral, unethical or unbiblical, then you've got to say no. And if you're in a dating relationship and you have a a man that is asking you to do things in those particular categories uh, as quickly as you can, you kick his sorry tail to the curb and you go find you another man in Jesus' name, of course. That's what you need to make sure that you go and do because he's a scum-sucking dog and you don't need him in your life. I, I hope that's clear, okay? So... Now, let me raise this issue and I'll move on. In marriage, does being submissive mean that you allow yourself to continue in an abusive relationship where you feel that you and perhaps the children that God will give most of you someday are in danger? No, it does not. Now, let me put my cards on the table. I have never in my entire life and in my entire ministry, almost 40 years now, I've never counseled anyone to get a divorce. I never have. I believe that Malachi 2 is true, that God hates divorce. And I believe that our God is a God who can take broken lives and broken marriages and put them back together. He is the great God of reconciliation. So I always hold out for hope when it comes to reconciliation. But I have counseled people to separate. 1 Corinthians 7 says that is legitimate and allowed. But I've also counseled women in particular to take out a warrant and have an abusive spouse arrested. So, does being submissive mean you allow yourself to be in a situation where you are physically being abused? No, it does not mean that at all. But outside of those particular categories, God says, You want to honor me as a godly wife, then you yield to your husband you submit to your husband and then look at what he says in verse 33 at the end and let the wife see that she respects her husband that she honors her husband that she admires her husband now I'm like everybody else I think for the most part in this area I like to be liked okay I don't have some kind of death wish or some type of morbid personality that, that goes around not giving a flip about what anybody thinks. I'm like most normal people. I like to be liked. I hope that you, after I'm finished in a few moments, say, I like his teaching. I was blessed by it. I was encouraged by it. He taught me some things. I hope that you like me. I'm just like everybody else. But there is a sense in which I don't give a rip what any of you think about me. I don't care. As long as I know that my wife, Charlotte, loves me, believes in me, and that she is proud of me. I cannot explain it, but all I can say to you, and most every man is just like me, outside of Jesus, what my wife thinks about me matters to me more than anybody else. You see, you might not like me because you don't know me. If she doesn't like me, it is because she knows me. And therefore, there's something about her love, her respect, her admiration that on the inside builds me up in a good way that cannot take place by any other means this side of heaven. And so, ladies, there is the biblical foundation that God lays for you in terms of how you relate in marriage. You're going to submit to him. You're going to admire him. Now, let me give you uh, one area in particular I think that you can begin to think about that will, uh, that, that's very practical that will go a long ways in your relationship. Uh, most of all of you have heard the colloquial saying, in the home, if mama ain't happy, What? Ain't nobody going to be happy. Now, ladies, that may not be fair, but it's true. It is absolutely true. I mean, you really are what I call the thermostat of the house. And when your personal thermostat goes up to about 80 or 85 or 90, or God forbid 95 or 100, it's not just hot for you. No, 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 no. It is hot for everybody but when that puppy gets back over to about 75 or or 70 or praise Jesus 65 then it's cool for everybody. Now I want to be fair before I I, kind of get in your business for just a moment. I've been married for almost 37 years and I married me a good woman a godly woman. I mean I got a gal that loves Jesus but I have discovered in life and you will as well guys that even godly women who love Jesus Can have a bad day okay godly women a good woman I mean she loves Jesus she can still have a bad day now my poor wife I don't know why God did this to her but my poor wife was condemned to live in a male dormitory with five males for over 20 years me and four sons. I mean, I came home one day, true story, came home one day, she met me at the front door, and I mean, she had that look on her face, and she simply said, I'll tell you something, boys will do things a dog won't do. <laughs> I still don't know to this day what they did. I don't want to know, and so I just accepted it. But, but, but I'll tell you this too, one woman can handle five men too. We learned that as well. And so when our boys were growing up, we had a thing. And the thing was, if mama was having one of those bad days, we would say, mama has got that look in her eye. And that was our way of warning one another, just kind of be careful, just kind of stay out of her way. Well, came home one day, true story, all four boys met me at the front door and they said, daddy, stop, stop right there, we need to talk. And Timothy, our youngest, the verbal one, said, uh, the looks back, And it's back big time, and you need to go in there and do something. Okay, all right. Y'all stay out here. Let me go in. Let me just kind of check out the the temperature of the room. And so I went into the house, and there she was in the kitchen. Uh, She was working at the sink. And even though I could not even see her face, by the way she was conducting business in that kitchen, I could tell, yeah, she's got the look, and it's, it's here big time. So I quietly slipped back out of the house. Oh, yeah. I learned a few things over the years. Got the boys in a male huddle, and I said, well, guys, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, she, she's got the look. And they said, well, yeah, Daddy, she's got the look. So what are we supposed to do? And I said, well, guys, uh, here's Dad's counsel, every man for himself. <laughs> I said, I, I, I've seen this look before, and it basically says I need to be left alone for a couple of hours, so I'm, I'm going to leave her alone. I suggest you leave her alone, and if you cross her path and get in trouble, don't call me because I am not coming. We are all on our own. (laughs) But now, ladies, listen to me. If you read the Proverbs, you will discover that the Bible says, inspired by God, that a man in marriage would rather live in the desert, in the attic, or on the roof than with a the King James said it so well, a contentious woman. You say, well, what does that mean? It means she gripes and she nags and she whines. And men just really don't like being around griping, nagging, whiny women, they just don't. I mean, it just, it's wearisomeness to our bones, okay? And it's just something we don't do well with. And so you, you might say, well, what does a man do if he has a woman like that? Uh, it's very simple, it's called fight or flight fight or flight now let me unwrap that very quickly some men fight their wives now most don't most men don't hit their wives in fact we know from research that spousal abuse is twice as common among cohabitors as it is the married. so most married men do not physically hit or fight their wives so if they don't fight you um, physically they might fight you verbally but they won't do that very long either you say well why not because we lose We lose, we can't whoop y'all in a verbal battle. You say, why not? Well, it's really quite simple and this is documented research from sociologists. We now know from extensive research that the average male can communicate or generate about eight to 10,000 words a day. That's what the average male is capable of putting together in a normal day. But the average female, are you ready? 20 to 25,000 words a day with gust up to 50. And (laughs) now, I, I am playing about the gust, but I think it's still probably true. But anyway, here's the deal, ladies. You are verbal animals. God wired you that way. You communicate so much better than we do. And so when it comes to this area of a home, if it's a nagging, Griping, whiny context or atmosphere, he's just not going to want to hang around. Now, some men walk out of their marriages, some men stay married, but they still walk away. They become workaholics. Or they become that guy that's always involved in extra, the thousand extracurricular activities. Maybe he's always playing you know, softball or playing basketball or playing flag football. Or maybe like some of you guys, you'd like to go hunt and fish. Uh, I still haven't ever figured that one out. You know, this whole deer hunting thing? I don't get that. I mean, why in the world would you prefer to be up in a tree at 5 o'clock in the morning, freezing your tail off, trying to kill Bambi, When you could be back home in a nice warm bed hugging your woman. That's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned, so I'll just leave that for what it is. But the fact of the matter is, ladies, as you respect him, admire him, and yield to him, you providing a home that is a place of rest, rejuvenation, is so crucial to loving him in a good, healthy way. Now, let me talk to the men. Because Paul actually spends a lot more time talking to the men than he does the ladies. And he lays out a beautiful theology of what it means for a man to rightly love a woman. Look at it. I'm going to walk you through it very quickly. First of all, he says, beginning in verse 25, you are to love your wife sacrificially. Husbands, love your wives. How, Paul? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up. her. Isn't it amazing that Paul grounds his theology of marriage in the atonement and basically says to men, you want to know how to love your wife? We just sung about it magnificently. You look to the cross, you reflect upon how God in Christ has loved you and then you go and love this lady in exactly the same kind of a way. By the way, that word love is a verb it's an imperative, it's a word of command, it's in the present tense. So Paul commands us to continually love our wives in exactly the same way we have been loved by Christ when he died in our place and bore in our stead the wrath and judgment of God. Now every now and then a man will say to me, well Danny, I don't understand. How, how can God command me to have a particular kind of emotion And I respond because the love that Paul is talking about here in verse 25 is not an emotional love. It is a volitional love. It is love that is a choice, a decision. It is an act of your will whereby you choose to love someone whether they are lovely or or not. Let me remind you men, you weren't lovely when Jesus died for you. You weren't lovely when he bore the wrath of God in your place. And so you are to love your wife anyway. It's not I love her if she acts in a certain kind of a way or I love her because she does certain things for me. No, no, no. You love her anyway. You love her period. No strings attached. You love her sacrificially. Secondly, you love her in a sanctifying kind of a way. He says there in verse 25 he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she might be holy and without blemish now you say Danny I understand how that works I think with Christ and the church but how does that work in marriage well let me even apply it to dating let me raise a question You're here this morning and maybe you're dating and getting more serious and even thinking about marriage. All right, let me ask you a question, guys. Because this young lady is dating you, are you enabling her and encouraging her and empowering her to become more like Jesus? In other words, is she growing spiritually in your relationship because of the way you're loving her and leading her? Because you see this idea of sanctifying simply means to grow in Christlikeness. So a great question for you to ask, and for you to ask as well, ladies, is because of my relationship with him, is he helping me and encouraging me and enabling me to grow to be more like Christ? Or is it actually, I'm headed the other way. Are there things taking place in our dating relationship that is not drawing me closer to Christ, but actually driving me away from Christ. Now again, the burden in this text, boys, is on you. You're the one to be the spiritual leader. You're the one to be nourishing her. You're the one to be sanctifying her. And you are loving her in such a way that she is enabled and motivated and encouraged to grow to be more like Jesus. So your love is sacrificial and sanctifying. But then thirdly, your love is also to be a sensitive kind of a love. Look at what he says there in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, how? As their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul's argument is something like this. You take care of you. You pay attention to you. You know when you're having a good day or a bad day, you know what blesses you and what doesn't, and so in the same way, you should be sensitive to what is going on in the life of this lady that God has put to your side. I like to use this analogy. God is calling a husband to have what I call a marital radar system, a marital radar system. And you're sending out signals, and you're picking up signals and getting them back so that you can uh, uh, figure out and even get in tune with what's going on here. How is she feeling? What is she thinking? Good day, bad day, happy girl, unhappy girl? Now, I I will confess to you all, all, all of us as men have the equipment to have this marital radar system, but mine was like super underdeveloped when we first got married. First of all, we were young, 21 and 19. Secondly, my mama had just spoilt me all of my life, uh, and so that wasn't good. And and third, we didn't have any premarital counseling because I was living in Dallas, Texas. She was living uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And actually, the Sunday before we got married, our pastor got up on Sunday night and announced he and his wife were separating, getting a divorce. Next morning, we see him for our only marital counseling session. He says, well, you know what? After last night, I don't think i can say much, so I'll see you all Friday for the rehearsal dinner. And that was the totality of our premarital counseling. Not good. So we're married three or four months, and uh, one particular evening, my wife decided to fix for us some really nice sandwiches and some potato chips for, um, for our dinner. Now, she put on the table this Tupperware thing. And if you had a magnifying glass and a great imagination, you might think that what was in that Tupperware thing at one time resembled potato chips, but now you're just not really sure because they were so crumbly and they were, they were stale. They were gummy. So I said, honey, I don't like these. These are too small and stale, and I'd like to have some new potato chips. Well, my wife, for whatever reason, when we first got married, was aspiring to be in what I call the frugality hall of fame. That is what she wanted. So she said, well, well, darling, when these are gone, you can have some others. Well, that, 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 that was not at all the response that I was wanting or even anticipated. So I came back and I said, well, 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 honey, I came by the pantry on the way in here and I saw in there a brand new bag of Lay's potato chips that have never been touched by human hands. And I'd really like to have those. And she looked at me, and she said, well, uh, like I said, uh, sugar dumpling, when this one is empty, you can have some more. So I did something a man would only do in his first year of marriage at about the age of 21. I stood up, took her Tupperware thing, and I dumped those potato chips in her floor. Oh, I know, ladies, easy. Oh, I, Believe me, I understand. Such a man ought to die right there on the spot no questions asked justifiable homicide I get it oh I get it oh it, by the way it gets worse it gets worse I looked at her and I said this one's empty now won't you go get those others I know I know I know I know you say did she go get the others are you kidding me she didn't do a lot of things around that house for about a month best I remember it was not good And so I came to understand quite early my sensitivity to her needs, my sensitivity to the way she sees things. Uh, It's got a lot of work to do. You say, okay, so you're now, I'm 58 years old, been married almost 37 years. You got it figured out? No. But I'm a lot further down the road than I used to be. And I can tell you this, guys when she walks into the room, I can tell, is she having a good day or a bad day? By the tone of her voice, I know. Are things going well, or she's got something that's bothering her? Because I've watched her, I've studied her, and I've grown to be more sensitive to her in the, all these years that we have been together. Number four, your love should be a satisfying kind of a love. Look at what he says there in verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes, present tense, Cherishes, present tense, which means you continually feed her, you continually honor her as Christ does the church. Let me ask you a question. Maybe you're here today and you're married. Does your wife know that outside of Jesus, she matters to you more than anybody else? Or maybe you're engaged and you're planning on getting married. Does your mate-to-be know? That outside of Jesus, you care about them more than anybody else. That's what it means to cherish them. That's what it means to nourish them. And then finally, he says your love should be a specific kind of a love. The first part of verse 33 says, and, or however, nevertheless, let each one of you love his wife as Himself. I like the way the New King James says it, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. You say, what does that mean, Danny? It means this, you're a one-woman kind of man. You're a one-woman kind of man that in your marital relationship you're in love with, committed to, and devoted to only one woman, and that one woman is your wife. Let me apply it to dating as I begin to put this together and close it down. Is your boyfriend your fiance this guy you're hanging out with is he a flirt oh he says he loves me I don't give a rip what he says is he a flirt is he a guy that you know you don't trust when you're not around is he the kind of guy that you really do believe has your back in the foxhole and would not only take a bullet for you he'd shoot somebody for you I mean, do you have that kind of confidence in him? You see, what I'm basically saying is this. In all that you see going on in Ephesians, Paul is, I think, pushing us toward a very simple reality, and that is this. Under the lordship of Christ, as we enjoy this great gift called marriage, we need to be growing year by year by year by year to be best friends. In fact, two minutes and I'm through. You come to see me for premarital counseling. I'm gonna to talk to you about, do you know the Lord? And if you don't know the Lord, I'm gonna share the gospel with you. And I, by the way, I will not marry unbelievers and I will not marry a Christian to a non-Christian. I will not do it. I'll do their counseling, but I won't marry them. I'm not going to do that. But I'm gonna to talk to you about the Lord. Then I'm gonna to talk to you about the common areas in a marriage that uh, are the most uh, important that you continually monitor over and over and over and that you keep an eye on. You say, well, what are those? Communication finances, your sex life, children, and in-laws. That's the big five. Communication, finances, sex, children, in-laws. You just continually have to guard those and continually have to work on those and continually have to monitor those. And then at the very end, I'll say something like this. Usually I start with the the lady in the room and I will say, do you like him? Do Do you like him? And 99 times out of 100, you have always said, oh, I love him and I will always say oh that's wonderful that wasn't my question let's try again do you like him and then i look at the guy and i say hey do you like her I know you I know you're attracted to her you wouldn't be here but do you like her and then what I will say is this listen to me If it's not true now, here's my assignment during the next several months as we walk through this premarital counseling time together. I want you to begin to work very hard at growing to be one another's, now listen to me, best friend. Best friend. Because if you do grow to be best friends, I can promise you two things. Number one, your marriage will go the distance and number two, your marriage will be a blessing. You say, how can you promise that? Because best friends don't give up on one another, and best friends like hanging out with one another. When I got married, 2119, did I think I was marrying my best friend? No. I thought I was marrying this really pretty brown-eyed brunette that would be fun to hug and kiss and hang out with for the rest of my life. But being on the radar of my best friend, no, that just wasn't there because no one told me anything like that. But today, as I've mentioned now several times, almost 37 years. And if you were to ask me this morning, well, Danny, who is your best friend? Well, I got a lot of really good friends, at least five or six, that I think would take a bullet for me in the foxhole. And they're all males, by the way. I would never have a female in that inner circle. I just wouldn't. It's not smart or wise. But without any question at all, the very, very, very best friend I have is my wife, Charlotte. And it was alluded to last night, and I kind of gave a playful answer, but, but here's the fact of the matter. It does get better with each passing year. It does get sweeter with each passing year. And the key to avoiding what is called intimacy stagnation is just getting to be best friends. I loved Charlotte when I married her 37 years ago. But if I were to tell you I loved her then and I love her today, I'd have to do something a little different, and I'd have to do it like this. I would have to say to you, well, when we got married, I loved her. But today, I really, really, really love her. In fact, I didn't know that this kind of love even existed when we first got married. And because we have, over these 37 years, grown to be best friends, That intimacy in our marriage has gotten wider. It has grown deeper. And again, I can tell you this from personal experience, this side of heaven, there's nothing like being married and having a godly wife to be there when you're hurting, to be there when you're confused, to be there when the world's beating you up, and to recognize that God knew exactly what he was doing when he said, it is not good that a man is alone. I will make him a helper who will perfectly complement him." Marriage is a great gift from a glorious God which has the purpose of pointing this world to a king named Jesus and showing them and putting on display for them to see his wonderful gospel. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the gift of marriage. I do thank you that you saw fit to put a woman beside a man in a covenant relationship. And, Lord, again, I acknowledge it is hard work, but it is worthwhile work. So, Lord, give all of us in this room a passion for a marriage that will glorify you, knowing that a marriage that glorifies you will also be really, really good for us. Thank you for doing this. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.